Good morning. A little out of practice, I'm sorry. A little rusty here. Not sure what I'm doing next, but I'm trusting that you're blessed already in the presence of the Lord and His people and how great it is and encouraging it is to be together. Laura, thank you so much for that presentation. You know, a lot of us know uh, Tim. A lot of us know Laura too, but a lot of us know Tim and, you know, General Corbett and everything. Did you know Laura's the sharp one out of the two? I don't know if you realize that or not. He kind of admits the same thing. So, Laura, thank you very much for that update and overview and all the things that we get to pray about and, and even enter into and stuff. It's really incredible to see all that the Lord's doing. That's been our theme all along uh, for the last uh, now six or so weeks is to see what the Lord is doing beyond the scope of everything that's obvious or right under our noses and stuff. And so as we see that grander vision, it should be compelling us and calling us to um, ask the question, how can we enter in and what can we do to participate and so uh, that's the that's the thing that we have before us. Uh, this week, too, was the last couple of weeks pretty incredible. I, I don't know how much you've noticed. There's obviously a different backdrop behind me, so that's a major change. And the cool lighting effect and everything that took place. But all of these lights here are new, and that was a project that we've had on our radar screen for a long time. And because we were able to do the service out on the lawn, that meant we had two weeks of of uh, um, opportunity in this room to do the things that we've been uh, needing to do. And Gus had a crew out here, and they just got the job done very efficiently and did an incredible job. And um, I don't know if you heard about this new thing called LEDs. Someone just told me this week about Ellie. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, so that's, you know, all going to change and, and help us out and longer lasting, more efficient, all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and if you've noticed the landscape of church culture and church light, uh, life these days puts a lot of emphasis on these kinds of things, the experience in the room, right? And it's kind of a dangerous elixir from time to time. And if we're not careful... Uh, we can get carried away with these things and stuff. And so we're always trying to be mindful of that, trying to spend the Lord's money wisely. We have the expertise of people that have come in and given their time and, and made these things available to you. I, I just want to thank Ben Parker in particular for um, helping create this backdrop and making that all possible and Gus and his crew. So, And so what I'm going to say doesn't diminish any of that because if you're like me, you're very visual. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I've got heavy metal tendencies, so I want to see the drummer. I want to see Justin on a lift with pyrotechnics and stuff. That's kind of what, you know, speaks to me. But that's, you know, all right, there's some, Justin's going like this, like, please don't lift me in the air. But I like that sort of thing. But, you know, when it comes to the worship of the Lord, everything has its place and its balance. And so we try to walk that balance line, and sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail. The point is, is that as we come together as a church, just like Pastor Tom was explaining to us earlier, we come together for the purpose of exalting the Lord together corporately. You know, we can do that individually. We can do that out in nature, as we so often say, yes. But there's a change and there's a, a, a unity that develops as we do it together as a church. And so we come together in moments like this to do this. It causes us to be more Godward uh, focused and uh, gives us the uh, the attention or gives him the attention from us on that matter. But we're not just here. We, we are here to exalt him and glorify him. But we do that through the equipping of the saints. This is primarily a church for believers. You might say, well, that's kind of rude. I'm not sure I'm a believer and I'm here visiting with you and you've just told me I'm not welcome. That's not what we're saying at all. 
What we hope you see is that you see lives changed and transformed from God's people so that you say, I want some of that too, and how can I participate? And then we'll do anything we can, bend over backwards to welcome you in. But for the most part, God calls his people together to grow together in unity and function. That's why we hear about opportunities for outreach. That's why we lift these songs up for praise. That's why we study God's word first and foremost. You didn't come here because you needed a guru. You may think you needed one, but you didn't come here because you needed a guru. You didn't need some wise old sage that's starting a cult so that you can do everything somebody up front with a microphone can say. What we need in life is somebody who says, I believe that this is what God's word says and how he's speaking to you to apply it. Go and do likewise. And then we aid you in the process and we come alongside you and support and worship with you. That's in good times and in bad. So that's why we come to the scriptures as diligently as we do. We always want the word of God to be the focal point of what it is that we do together. It informs everything else that we do. Or at least it should. Certainly I'm not up here saying that we all get this right. Um, but we strive to. And so we hope that as you're visiting with us or maybe as you're kicking the tires on this church or maybe you've been coming here for years and years that these kinds of things will keep reminding us why we participate in this church together. So uh, that is why we're going to get into um, the scriptures again this morning. But I want to start off just by, uh, again, I said I'm a little rusty. I haven't really preached to an actual sermon in I don't know how many weeks, but it's been a lot. And so even just kind of transitioning to how we get into this, what I want us to think about is that there's a difference in the hope that people live by. And there's a general hope that's out there that for sure is the, the common and useful hope. I believe that God is so good to this world that even those that deny him, even those that don't follow him, he lets in general a good hope rest on them in certain ways. People that would be um, God deniers or angry at God or God rejectors would still have perhaps a good marriage, might still be good parents, might still be productive in society. Those things can happen. There's a general goodness, a general hope that society can live by and things will go okay. The difference, though, is that general hope doesn't really sustain us throughout all of life and certainly doesn't prepare us for eternity. Because what happens is this general hope, this good gift that God gives us in the hands of sinners, which is who we are. The scripture says that all of us who were born, how many of you were born? Um, all of us who were born were born in sin. It wasn't that we waited till we were toddlers and then broke the lamp that on purpose where we said, okay, now you're a sinner. We were born in our sin so that we broke the lamp acting out on the sin that we were born in. And so because of that, this general hope that's put in the hands of sinners turns very quickly into idolatry. So instead of just saying, I want a good marriage, that's a general hope. I hope I have a good marriage. If people are starting off saying, you know, I hope this thing fails and goes down the flush, that's probably a very um, a terrible way to start that relationship. Most of us would say, I'm going into marriage and I hope it pleases me. I hope it's successful. I hope it lasts forever. Or we say, you know, I hope that I raise safe and productive children. I hope that they turn out to be good citizens of our country and of this state and of all, and friends of the people that they have and things. Or most of us would say, I'd hope to make enough money to pay my bills and be responsible. I'm not starting off my adulthood hoping to be massively in debt and falling behind and feeling the pressure of collectors calling me and those sorts of things. So there's a general hope that we operate in, but once it gets into the hands of our sinful being, we turn it into things like, I hope my marriage satisfies me. 
Not just a good marriage, not just a, a happy marriage or something, but I hope they give me what I need from it. Or actually, I hope that my kids have no sicknesses, no threats, no dangers. I hope that they pick the best of schools. I hope they have a, a flourishing career. Otherwise, I'll give in to fear and panic and I'll, I'll um, what do they call it, helicopter parent that thing and make sure it happens. Or it's not so much just enough to pay the bills. Now I actually want an abundant cash flow or I think I've earned a place in life that the house should be bigger and more prominent on the street and I want people to look at what I own to uh, equate to my worth and my value. This is what we do. Some of us more obvious, some of us subtly. When we live just based on this general hope, we kind of manipulate it towards our own wishes and wants. But an ultimate hope is something that every believer has received. That ultimate hope is something that is more dependable or it's guaranteed. And we don't have a lot of dependable or guaranteed things in this life, do we? But it's the thing that we crave, but we very rarely identify it, pick it out of the crowd and say, oh, that's the thing that I can, I can trust in wholeheartedly that will never let me down. We don't really often operate with that sense of security. But this is the realm that God moves in. This idea of he's given general hope and a good function of society and some rules for how that goes and protect this life and do these sorts of things. And he's laid out that general hope, but, but he has also moved in his story of redemption to provide ultimate hope. He doesn't just remain in the realm of general hope because he knows we need something more secure. If you're like me, you're constantly tempted or, or maybe oriented to hope in lesser things. I have a lot of those general hopes, but I quickly turn those things into needs. And I'm smart enough, really, to say, I don't say this out loud, but there's this little thing in my heart of hearts. It's, it shows itself in my reactions or the things that I get frustrated or let down by, that there's this thing in the quiet place on my heart that says, if God really loved me, he'd give me fill in the blank. Timothy Lane, the counselor and pastor asks a very important question. He says, is Jesus our therapist or our redeemer? If he's our therapist, then he meets my needs as I define them. If he's my redeemer, then he defines my true needs and addresses them in ways far more glorious than I could have anticipated. He doesn't stay with general hope because ultimate hope, the the things of real security provide to our satisfaction more than we could ever dream. But that isn't kind of how we, our expectations aren't aligned with this. We've only known this physical life. I only know the things I can see and taste and smell and, and touch. And I only know let down from other people. I only know let down from my own efforts. So I'm tempted to seek satisfaction only for the here and now. But God is revealing more for us at every turn. So let's think about this key thought as we go forward into this time in our scriptures. My desire for lasting or substantive things, which is where we should be living in that desire, it grows as my obsession or my knowledge with God's bigger picture increases. The more we think about the bigger landscape of what he's doing, what he's prepared for both now and the future, and how I'm preparing myself for both now and the future, starts to change and move into that realm of ultimate hope. My, my, my expectation for the, for the passing things, for the, for the, um, 
for the dying things starts to lessen. Now, you may have uh, wondered what ever happened to the last couple of phrases of the Apostles' Creed. If you're new to our church, what we were doing in addition to our, our missionary visits and the attempts at kind of getting into our Ephesians passage and stuff, what we were doing is we were having different teachers come up and teach just a phrase of what has historically been referred to as the Apostles' Creed. And we've done this now, counting today, over 12 lessons. And these last two phrases of the Apostles' Creed, which is what we're wrapping up here this morning, will draw our attention to God's bigger picture for future things. Namely, the resurrection of the body, the physical body, and life everlasting. Now, like many of my um, other... Um, you know, lecture sharers or, or, or teachers here over the last 11 weeks now, um, we're borrowing some of our outlines or some of our thoughts and things from a couple of sources. Matt Chandler's church in, in the Village Church in Texas taught an entire series on this and they published some curriculum and stuff. So we've loosely used some of that framework and we've consulted with other authors. And for me this morning, namely J.I. Packer, a great uh, Anglican theologian and very trustworthy source. And so there's some of that that I'm a Admitting to you and sharing with you that I'm borrowing from in order to keep our framework uh, solid on these two statements. Because I believe that these two truths are given to us to bring practical hope in the here and now. Now, these are all couched in statements of what we believe, right? I believe in. So first of, of our two statements this morning is I believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, if you go back to our Ephesians study, the statement that we've made often is, you know that we don't need just simply a resuscitation. We don't just need more oxygen in our lungs. We were, in fact, dead apart from Christ. We were, we were, um, uh, we were without Christ and, and the walking dead and wandering aimlessly. We needed a resurrection. And that is what Jesus did both in his own, in his own power and his own body. And then that promise uh, visit, visits us, all who believe. So we don't need a resuscitation, we need a resurrection. So therefore we say, based on the scriptures that we have in front of us, I believe in the resurrection of the body. I don't know if you've noticed, if anybody's getting older in this room, but the hopelessness of our current physical state is the kind of thing that just really lets us down. I hate to admit it, I used to hate it when people older than me would talk about, well, now all it is is aches and pains and I got my pills all lined up and everything. I was like, ah, oh, everyone's just talking about being old. Now I'm saying the same things. My friends and I, we catch ourselves talking about our ailments. I'm like, we've become those people sitting around in a circle talking about how hard it is to get out of bed in the morning or, you know, all these kinds of injuries and stuff. Why? Because the body trends towards breakdown but with that breakdown, if you notice that the further on we go, there's more of a desire to leave it all behind. When you're young, you're thinking, I got it all ahead of me. I don't want to, I don't want to face the fact of death. I don't want to think about the fact of death. But when you get older, you think, you know, it wouldn't be so bad. A little break, a little rest, a little less ailments and all those kinds of things. Well, you're not alone if you think that way. In fact, the, uh, other than Jesus, the one considered to be the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth, writes this in Ecclesiastes 12. It's very poetic the way he says these things, but he's really just talking about not just the breakdown of the body, but what it causes us to desire. So in Ecclesiastes 12, let me just read this somewhat lengthy paragraph for us today. 
He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days came and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. Picture this. And the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed when our eyes start to lose sight and everything's cloudy and we have to hold that book further and further and further away. Pretty soon you're going to see me preaching back here. That's the way it goes. And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and the one rises up at the sound of a bird. Anybody getting up at four in the morning when before you used to be able to sleep in? And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. He's expressing for us that there's a desire to leave the decay of this behind, that it gets wearisome to continue to move around in these breaking down bones and this failing flesh. You see, hope in our bodies is a young person's disposition or the luxury of young people. As we encounter our body's futility, we're given more over to thoughts of eternity and a desire to leave it behind. So Paul cautions his apprentice, his young Timothy in his life, uh, with a way to not give into the hope in his youth, just to put his uh, trust in that which is fleeting and perishing. In 1 Timothy 4, he says to him, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, I've heard a lot of people say, uh, the scripture says that exercise is a waste of time. And they use this verse. But I like this translation a little better. It's of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. So there's a priority there. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. There's a picture given to us here in Paul's encouragement to Timothy, a picture of living beyond the now you can you can live in your strength and in your youth, Timothy. It's good to enjoy it, don't we still? We look at those that are still of strong body and mind and we like, man, they're, you know, I look at my teenagers, I'm like, you know, they're just living on cereal and they're still able to dunk basketballs and do all these kinds of things or they fall and their bones heal immediately and stuff and I pull a muscle brushing my teeth, you know, especially like after a week of eating nothing but protein and stuff and it still is like, no, it's not going to work. But there's a picture of living beyond the now. We don't just live and put our trust and our hope in the things that will eventually fail us. But living for eternity in God's bigger picture, as Paul is saying, develop in yourself or discipline yourself in godliness has not only an eternal impact, which it will, but it'll also change things in the here and now. 
because there's hope in the resurrection of the body. Now, in, in really one of the seminal chapters of, of all things resurrection, Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 15 some really great insight as to what we can expect and what we can anticipate for our future. And so we're going to cherry pick, if you will, some of these verses, but I'm going to encourage you that as we're, as we're talking about going and studying more and learning God's big landscape, seeing what he's up to in the bigger picture, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great place to start. Verses 12 through 14 specifically says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead, which was a controversy going on at the time? There were some saying uh, that they didn't anticipate or believe the body to be raised from the dead. So Paul says, at the same time you're saying you're following Christ, why would you be following a dead Christ who didn't raise from the dead? Verse 13, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, that uh, has not been raised, I'm sorry, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We jump down to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then all, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You hear the weight of what he's saying here? He's saying, he said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then everything that you and I just did this morning is a complete waste of time. People should pity us beyond anybody else. Why? Because we look like hopeless people trying to cling to the the smallest thread of any shred of life is going to get better for me. And it's an empty vanity if we go back to the Ecclesiastes passage. So Paul is saying everything that we believe, everything that gets us up in the morning, everything that gives us hope through the difficulties is found in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, our faith is futile if there's no resurrection. So we continue in 1 Corinthians 15. Jumping down to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's getting the process started. He was the first one to be resurrected from the dead so that all of us in Christ would follow in his footsteps. For as by a man came death, that's Adam. By a man uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead, which is the new Adam, who is Jesus Christ. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Listen to verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Our future hope, what we're claiming here from the Apostles' Creed, but anchored in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, our future hope, this expectation that our bodies will rise, regardless of their form. I don't understand the mystery. I don't have all the answers. But in bodily form, we will be raised from the dead. And that is based on the historical fact that Jesus has done so. And it's in that that we are supposed to place our hope in the future. I just want to read one pastor's story uh, that he was telling his congregation one time. And, and uh, uh, he says there was once a, a dear old lady named Meryl. And at her funeral, as many relatives and friends were paying their respects, everyone who drew near the open casket came away feeling a little confused. 
Meryl was lying there holding a fork in her hand. Gradually, the guests took their seats, and when the burial service began, the minister stood up and addressed the congregation of mourners. Dear friends, he says, thank you for coming. But before we begin our service, I'm sure you're all wondering why our dear sister Meryl lies in state holding a fork. Well, I have to tell you that Meryl's final request was to be buried with a fork in her hand. I've done a number of funerals in my time and received all sorts of requests from people about how they would like their funeral to be conducted. Meryl's request was certainly one of the strangest requests I've heard. When I asked her why, she explained, well, when I was a little girl, my grandmother would take me to church, and after the service, there would always be a selection of cakes and desserts. Often, I would eat a piece of cake and then put my fork and plate away, but but sometimes, my grandmother would come up and tell me to keep my fork because the best desserts were yet to come. The reason why I want to be buried holding a fork is because, just as my grandmother told me, I believe that the best is still yet to come. And that, my dear friends, the pastor says, is why Meryl asked to be buried holding a fork. The best for her was yet to come, though I believe for her it has come. The Christian's ultimate hope is that the problem of death has been solved. You know, we we are in a culture now where churches have to promise so much peace and prosperity in the here and now just to get people to come. That we spend so much of our time saying, if you just give your problems to Jesus, he'll make them all go away. And I don't ever guarantee that. I know many of you don't guarantee that. That God may still call us to carry the burden and the weight of some of our difficulties, some of the things that have happened to us, or even the pressure and the pain of some of the things that we've caused to happen to other people. We don't just have that old easy button that Staples used to have and we just hit the button and it all goes away. That that memory may linger, that trauma may linger. But the ultimate hope is that it won't linger forever, that it has an expiration date. You see, the problem is the, the question the Christian's ultimate hope is that the problem of death has been solved. If that is speaking to you this morning, if that is grabbing you in a certain way, if that is starting to give you the kind of hope that you know you need to cling to, I would encourage you to go into your scriptures in First Corinthians 15 and read the rest of this chapter that we haven't covered. And anticipate it, cling to it and say, one day that's going to be me. One day all the pieces of my life, all the ugly parts are going to be put back together in beauty and form for God's use and in perfection before him. I'd also suggest Philippians 3, in particular verses 20 through 21, if you're keeping notes. So the statement is, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Our second statement is, really related to it, akin to it even, but still slightly different, that I believe in life everlasting. Jesus had said to us back when we were studying John, back in John 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them what? Eternal life. Remember we talked about that phrase being, it's not just a number of days that are added on after we die that now the calendar just keeps ticking infinitely and it just goes on forever and it does. But there's something different with this phrase of eternal life because that doesn't sound hopeful when you understand that those who die without Christ also have eternal life. They have endless days, but in punishment and in torment and separation from God. 
So what is it that Jesus is offering? He is offering us a quality of life and a forgiveness of sins and a walking in peace that begins now and will still go on for eternity. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We say, well, wait a second. The scripture says it's appointed for all of us once to die. Yeah, we will die. Unless the Lord comes back and every generation has said, well, if the Lord comes back, I won't have to die. It's better for us to understand there is one day that we will die. But Jesus says we'll never perish. We will never extinguish that as our body dies, our physical life dies, that our eternal life continues on. The quality of life that starts in the here and now. Some have said before, I think that's boring. I got to go and do this forever. I'm going to be an angel floating on a cloud playing a harp forever. Does the scripture say anything about us being angels and playing harps? It's a weird kind of tradition we got into, right? What the Bible talks about heaven and eternity and and future and endlessness has a lot to do with structure and, and order and activity and the presence of God. Going back to or going to J.I. Packer's quote, he asks again an important question. He says, what will we do in heaven? He goes, we won't be lounging around, but we'll be worshiping, working, thinking and communicating, enjoying activity, beauty, people and God. First and foremost, however, we shall see and love Jesus, our savior, master and friend. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around what it will be like, what it will feel like, what interests we'll have, what activities we'll be caught up in. We just don't really know because everything that we, everything that we experience in this earth is weighted down with performance or responsibility or fear or any of those kinds of things that don't allow us to fully appreciate, enjoy and take in the moment. We have to fight for those times. We have to block our brains from getting swept up in all of the pressure of the day. But the scripture tells us there'll be a day where we will experience a life full of our deepest satisfactions. Let's go and look at some of this in Revelation 21. Let's look at the end of the book. Let's let's think about, let's imagine and fantasize a little bit about what it's going to look like when all of this stuff is lifted off our shoulders. Revelation 21 John as the as the apostle and the author and the great church leader is punished and exiled into uh, separation from the rest of civilization and doing hard time. Everything the Lord is so good to him is to give him a revelation, to give him a vision and a view of all that he's going to uh, do. Even though there's so many parts of this we don't understand, God still in his mercy shares it with John to say, write this down and share it with the people. Why would God do that? Especially if he's not going to spell it all out to us in in great detail. Why would he do that other than to give us hope that there is a plan for something down the road? Beginning in chapter 21, verse 1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he says to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Just use your imagination as we wrap up our time here. New surroundings, free from a lot of the things that weigh us down right now. Free from the memories of our past or the things that would trigger us today to cause us to avoid certain things or never go down that path again. The things that we can still remember, the things that we can still remember that have happened or been perpetrated on us. The difficulties that we've witnessed or the difficulties that we've received or even the difficulties that we've caused. Imagine a place where none of that is allowed. That the memory of that has been blocked from the entrance at the gate. And then to be in the presence of our creator and lifelong sustainer. You ever been in a situation before where you've admired somebody from a distance, maybe a celebrity or somebody who's done something great and you finally get the chance to meet them and that surreal feeling of like, I, I really can't believe I'm talking to this person right now. Or I can't believe I get to witness what they're doing in person, whether they're performing or something like that. That is a glimmer of the mind-blowing experience that we will have when this Jesus that we've heard about, that we've studied about, that we've cried out to, that we've, that we've sometimes expressed our anger towards, or the one that we've misunderstood, the one that has been the most famous figure in all the world's history. And we're finally at his feet. And we're taking it in. And he wants to know us like we want to know him. And he expresses that kindness in those open arms. And at the same time, he says, I've completed my long project of redemption. Now the, the story is, is coming to a close of all the work that we had to put in and, and all these things and the sacrifice and everything. It is done. In Revelation 21.4, because I skipped a couple of verses here in this passage, on purpose. In verse 4, there's a famous one that we often refer to. Uh, it just says, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, I, I admit to you that as I often use that verse, I think about it in the, pres in the terms of at some point, the things that we do wrong won't be there anymore. The memories of all that we've done won't be there anymore. And so it's a relief to the sinner that says, hey, one day, I don't know why he has to wipe tears away from our eyes. There isn't anything in the verse that says you'll be crying about fill in the blank. I don't know what God's talking about here, but it does say he'll be wiping tears from our eyes. What are the things that we will be crying about? Are they tears of joy? Are they tears of heartache and, and hurt and everything? And he's, he's expressing that kind of that's behind us now. And often I refer to it as about the things that, that the individual has done or experienced or anything. But something else occurs to me as I see this a little bit closer. That we would be experiencing a quality of life from the removal of all sin in the area not allowed even into the presence of God. All the pain, the loss, the guilt, and the sadness isn't, isn't allowed in. And it helps me start to understand that eternal life is fully realized when all of the counterfeits are removed. All the things that I thought would give me fulfillment in life, all the things that I thought would bring me satisfaction that tempt me or lured me away or anything, those things aren't allowed in. 
It's like an addition by subtraction kind of thing. And some of you have experienced some profound hurts and some difficulties. And it's not just a matter of you don't feel worthy of getting into heaven. Instead, you understand, no, Christ is my worthiness. He has applied his his payment to me. But until I get there, I still have a really ugly life that I'm trying to forget that I would love to put behind me. Verse 8 says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And again, I read that verse and I say, as a warning, don't be those people. Don't don't let that be your description. Don't be the faithless or the cowardly or the detestable or the murderer or the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. I mean, but I know we are. Are we not? It's so much of the scripture says that those are the people that were welcomed to, to come to Jesus and they have, and they've laid it all down. I was, I was a habitual liar or I cheated these people or I stole from this or I killed this or something like that. And that God says, my grace and my mercy is big enough for you and I can save you from that. I can remove that history though. You may still remember it. It's gone as far as my accounting practices are concerned is what God says. So why would he say this, what he's saying in verse 8? That all of those people won't be allowed in. Well, clearly we're talking about those who never asked the Lord for their forgiveness. Who never made that account before him saying, I am this person and before you now I see how ugly that is. And I see how perfect and pure and grace-giving you are. So I lay it all at your feet and I ask for that payment to be applied to me. That's available to all of us and most of us have received that payment in faith. But there are many who won't. There are many who haven't. And there are many who still chase you down by their bad behaviors, by their atrocities and the pain that you're carrying with that. And Jesus is saying, because he loves you as a good shepherd, he's saying, don't worry, I won't even let that into the gate. That there is a day coming, you don't have to look over your shoulder. There's a day coming where you don't have to fear that all those things that people are doing to you, that I will block them out. Now, yes, we want that protection now, but we don't always get it, as we discussed earlier. So the ultimate hope is that one day that is blocked at the door. The reward of the everlasting life is both in what we gain, which is the presence of Christ, which is the part we can't even wrap our heads around how transformative and amazing that's going to be. And what is removed, which is the presence of evil within us and outside of us. It's just not allowed in. So when we're there, it's all different. It's all made new. Can you, can you begin to see why our hope needs to be in eternal things and not just caught up on the general hope of, I hope I pay the bills. I hope I have a good house. I hope I have, you see how empty and fleeting and and, and kind of temporary those things are. Have you ever experienced the peace that comes from obsessing a little bit more about the long-term plan? You know, when everybody, anybody comes up to you and says, what's your five-year plan? Don't you instantly shrink a little bit? Haven't thought that far ahead. I got a five minute plan I can share with you. Maybe even a five-hour plan because I thought about what I want for dinner tonight. So I think about it about that far, and that's about as far as it goes. And people kind of shame you and thinking, you don't have a five-year plan? Where are you going? Five-year plan's fine. I'm not trying to pick on any of you that live by one. But what the scripture is calling us to today is to have something much greater than that. 
Chandler refers to it as that 10,000 year plan. And I thought that was brilliant because it's the, what we sing about in amazing grace, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That there's this aspect of eternity that our, our imagination is way too short on. What if we had that 10,000 year plan? What if my, my mind and my heart was already le- leaning towards living for eternity? What if I didn't have to wait till my body was totally failing me to start thinking about that? What if I'm preparing for that even as a young, a young person? What if I'm doing that in the here and now? What if the five year plan isn't enough? What if the 10,000 year plan is the one that I should be obsessing about? Chandler was talking about in his experience, he many years ago now, maybe a little bit more than a decade ago now, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He's a young pastor, very successful and a sought after voice in our country. And it was looking like it was all coming to an end. And so he started pursuing that in faith and, and, um, and, uh, you know, with medicine and surgery and all those kinds of things. But it was really a public suffering that he was going through and sort of the nation. And I'm sure many around the world were praying for his recovery and stuff. And he made this one little statement when he was talking about his 10,000 year plan. He says, the net that caught me on the worst day of my life was a 10,000 year view. And I thought about that thinking, he says, no, there was no amount of success or maybe we can get the church to this level or we can do this next thing or achievement. Everything. None of that brought comfort. The only thing that brought comfort is as the individual, where would I be in eternity? Would I be worshiping at the feet of Jesus? Would I be enjoying the, the absence of all that is evil and all that has plagued me before? And how do I start fixing my hope and my attention on that rather than fearing what's going to happen to me in my breaking down body today? You see, as believers, our hope should be so uniquely focused on the things that are unseen or the things that are even unimaginable and definitely unbreakable that it will cause us to desire to desire that hope and it will cause others to look on the inside and desire that hope for themselves. The word of God calls us to be holy and we often think of holy in terms of robes and pointy hats and chants and things like that. But holy just means being different, set apart, used differently for God's purposes, not our own. And, and in our obsession, in our thinking about, in our, in our 10,000 year plan, we would be displaying a holiness because we're uniquely focused on the things that other people don't even know exist. But we do so in a way that they, they start to pay attention. They start to crave it. They say, where is your confidence coming from? Where is your peace coming from while your whole world's being rocked? Where is your peace coming from right in this moment? And in, in, unless you think that that's just a, a switch you can flip when you need it, maybe God will grant you the grace. I don't know. He's an extremely gracious God. I want us all to work hard and prepare for it. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes people, if they cling to me in, in humility in the moment, I'll be like, okay, I'm your rescue, I'm your savior. I know that's how he works. But there's also a huge part that we're kind of naive that we might even experience trouble. And we say, well, when the time comes, I'll dial it in. When the time comes, I'll focus on what he offers or this 10,000 year view and stuff. But these warnings and these encouragements are given to us today. So we start walking in them now that we prepare ahead of time. So where is your hope today? Is it in the resurrection of the body? And is it in life everlasting? I pray and trust that it is. I'm going to ask you to stand. We do have the Apostles' Creed ready to go, right? I'm going to, I'm going to ask you all to stand. We've been working on this now for 12 weeks. 
I've encouraged you to memorize it if you can. I've worked on it, but if I try to impress you with my memorization, you're going to hear me going. So I'm with you, but we have it on the screen and everything. What I thought we would do is work our way through it. It's going to sound like an eerie chant. I'm sorry. Just warning. Let's all embrace the awkwardness. But we're getting through these statements because of what they represent for us. And I trust that some of the lessons that we've heard along the way that our faithful teachers have presented to us will start to come back and that these statements will have deeper meaning in our hearts as opposed to just things that we learn by rote. So let's read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he arose again. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Lord God, thank you for bringing us through this journey. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a heritage of faithfulness and good doctrine and understanding of your word that has been passed down to us through the centuries. Thank you, Lord, for challenging your church to learn it and to live by it. And I pray, Lord, that you would extend to us grace as we continue to understand how um, how caring you are for us, how wise you are for us. But even with our theme this morning, Lord, how absolutely forgiving you are. So help us, Lord, to lay it all at your feet. Help us, Lord, in humility to come before you and recognize that all of our best thinking, all of our best strategies and solutions have gotten us into the point of needing you. So help us, Lord, to lean on your rescue. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.